Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me for Business, the Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have a look at one of our Harvard Business Review tips. This one, strike the right tone in a performance review. We're also going to be chatting with Christina about uh, the Boston Hospital Innovation Lab. But right now we're going to have a chat with Alan Stevens, who is a profiling and communication specialist. Good afternoon, Alan. G'day, Julian. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you, and thanks for joining us. So first question, uh, we're going to talk about talking ourselves out of a deal. Have you ever talked yourself out of a deal before? Oh, many times. Um, that was one of the first uh, things that I found that I had problems with when I started my own company was uh, giving too much information, getting too excited about what I had to offer and just uh, going well and all of a sudden just losing the person. So, so how did you overcome this? Well, I started doing as much training as I could. I went and uh, uh, spoke to uh, sales, tra uh, sales trainers, started getting advice from them, but then still realised that some people I would connect with immediately and other people I weren't connecting with. So I realised I needed. I realised that everybody's different, and what I needed to be able to do is be able to recognise each person's difference. So I knew how much information to give them and how much information not to give them. So uh, you've you've moved into this uh, profiling. What is rapid rapid trait profiling? Well, it's a combination of a number of skills. Number one is that uh, the facial features of a person will tell me how they like to think and process. If you quickly think of somebody who's been lifting weights, who is exercising, you can tell by the shape of their body that they, um, they actually exercise, you know how fit they are. You can even get an idea of what sort of exercises they do or what sports they play. Well, the same thing happens in the face. Whatever you're feeling emotionally will be shown on your face. So if you're somebody who concentrates really deeply, you're going to crunch the muscles up above your eyes, for instance, and create ridges and crevices. And it's in those features that you develop in your face that I can understand the history, their history, really, of how you like to think and process. So if I know that, then I know how to uh, deliver information and present it to you. So from there, I then have the words. What language do I use? Is it a formal language? Is it more uh, laid back and freestyle? Do I deliver information in quantity or in just give the big picture? Or do I give it in a, um, uh, a, a, a structured way where it's very much each item connected to the next or can I jump around the place? That all relates to your facial features. So if I can see your facial features, now I know the language and I can use the right words. But I also have body language and micro-expressions that are the little twitches on the face, the body movements, etc., which tell me exactly what your emotions are at that moment. So I now have the feedback on whether I've read you right and on whether I'm talking to you right. So, and that's so, what it's all about. So do I need any special skills to be able to read people? No, if you've got a pair of eyes and uh, you've got to focus uh, on other people, if you want to make a connection with somebody, and that's what it's all about. Sales are about re relationships. Uh, so you need to be able to read the other person, talk to them in the way that they want to be spoken to, make that connection with them, and then they'll buy from you. Because unless you have uh, built, uh, they don't. If they haven't, haven't got to like you, know you, and trust you, they're not going to buy from you. So I suppose this is something that anybody could do. Exactly. Now I've had a history of uh, always making the wrong decisions and reading things wrong. Now I'm considered to be one of the best in the world. And that's been through learning and then applying. I'm 
practice. So anybody can do what I do. So obviously uh, communication goes throughout business and, of course, throughout life and any circumstance we're in. Is there any other places in business we could use this? Well, in your uh, workplace relationships, uh, building your teams for a starter, people that get on with each other usually have similar traits. But your team is really strong when it's made up of people who are completely different to each other because people have traits that they like to do certain things and they'll be the things that you like to do that other people don't like doing. So this is how you build your team, by getting everybody using the best of their abilities, where their strengths are, to do the different work. So you need people with different types to work together. But that brings a lot of conflict in because of the different personalities. So there's one area. Then there's your relationships with your customers, with your suppliers. There's really no aspect in the workplace where you can't use this. So I suppose, obviously, if you're building a team of, of lots of different people, as you say, we need all those different skills, it would be worthwhile training them as well so that everybody is speaking the same, well, I won't say the same language, but understands each other in a deeper way. That's right. I used to use psychometric profiling, where, like Myers-Briggs and this, those sort of programs, where you had to do a workshop and you'd learn the other person's type. But the problem with that is that you've got to remember the actual code or category they're in. And if you've got any new person join the organisation, now you've got to go through the process again. But once you learn the traits, you can build somebody's personality from that information. So once you learn it, you've got it, new person joins the organisation, all you've got to do is now teach that person and they will fit in straight away with the rest of the team. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time and helping us to understand that. Uh, we'll have a chat with you again another time. Oh, I'd love to. Always there to help. Thanks, Alan. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alan Stevens there with helping us to deal with not talking ourselves out of deals and being able to read not just body language but those faces. If you want to know more, you can have a look at Alan's uh, website, alanstevens.com.au. Time to pop over to Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So we're going to talk to you about how do we do what we do it. How do we do it? Well, we are, how we actually do some of the theoretical principles that we've been discussing, yeah. So there's a wonderful organisation um, that I had some connectivity with in uh, in Boston when I was there for the conference earlier this year. They're a, a design thinking incubation lab, I guess, that work out of the Florida Hospital. And I know that we mentioned design thinking, you know, quite often during the show, so I thought I might give you a practical example of how it works. Um, and very interestingly... The Florida Hospital have a, have a program that they call FIL, which is Florida Hospital Innovation Lab, and they use the design thinking principles within that lab to make improvements to the hospital. Now, this hospital is one of the largest in the US. They see over 4 million patients a year. There's something like 2,000 doctors that work there. Uh, and in the time that the lab has been established, they've worked on about 206 projects. And when you think about it, you go, what a, what a better... Could there be a better place in a hospital situation mm. um, to actually prototype and test rapidly some of the new systems and processes that need to be put in place? So they do rapid prototyping, they do rapid cycle innovation, um, and they come up with new ways of servicing, new, uh, servicing existing products and services within the hospital. So, for example, they've come up with four new ways to use an existing product um, that, that the hospital was using and they came up with that in a day. Now, often things like that, we, we bypass them every day. We, you know, we might, we might have a, a use for a particular item or a use for a particular um, experiment or a use for a particular process, but we don't actually think how we can exp ex 
recommend it, use it in different ways. So they actually came up with four different ways to use one of their existing products. And all they did was observe surgeries, they talked to doctors and nurses, um, and they, they talked to their patients as well, they talked to their end users, um, and came up with the four new ways to do it. They cut out 32 days of the cancer process just by gaining empathy from the patients, the doctors and the technicians in another one of those projects. In another project, again, they saved a million dollars from a program um, and, and the people that actually devised that, that saving, that million dollar saving, went on to win an award. And what they, they say it's because, and we know this from the principles of design thinking, which we talked about, you talk to the end users, you connect with the end users to find out how the products work or how they don't work, in fact. So in admissions processes, you know, in administering correct medicines, and we often hear of mistakes being made in hospitals, you know, usually because they're short-staffed and, and they don't have um, they don't have the, the facilities to staff the processes in place to, to prevent these things. But in some cases, they've instigated very simple processes to save money, to save mistakes, to um, increase the well-being of patients. Uh, there was a really nice example too, where they um, in the in a uh, in a waiting room, all it was it was a simple matter of putting some games in the waiting room, putting some coloured cushions in. Believe it or not, coloured cushions, a few games, a couple of knots and crosses set, and then they started. Um, researching or asking or observing the moods of the patients as they came in to the to the to be you know seen by a doctor mm. and the remarkable thing was the improvement in mood the, the greater patients that they had because they were engaged in playing games they weren't engaged in sitting in a seat tapping you know tapping a desk Waiting. wondering when they were going to get in yeah all that, and that's all it was how simple an observation is that to have a longer-term um, benefit to both doctor and patient at the end of the day. So design thinking principles actually put into action saving millions of dollars in a hospital, um, but also the other non-numerical you know, non KPIs of better outcomes for patients, different ways of utilising product. So is this, a, uh, is this lab a, a team of people that is set up purposely just to look at all the issues that yes. come up? Yep, so they've set up an innovation lab. It's not run by doctors, it's run by, you know, ideators, it's run by people, experts in design thinking, workshop facilitators. Um, so they've gone into the Florida hospital, set up a design thinking lab, um, and this is where the doctors, the nurses, the, you know, the administrative staff bring problems, and then you use the collective, the collective knowledge of all those different people. So as we say in design thinking, it's the diversity in the group that comes up with the best results. Um, they use the diversity of the people that work within the administration. Because if you think about it, there's marketers, there's administrators, there's accountants, there's the whole, you know, a whole um, variety of occupations that, that can be found in the hospitals. Yeah. You put all those people in a room, how can you not solve a problem? Is there many other organisations that have got teams that specifically look at issues this way? Uh, the ComBank do. So the ComBank have actually got a, um, an innovation lab Mm. Um, in in Sydney, the Australian Taxation Office are using design thinking principles, um, and they're putting a lot of their staff through design thinking at the moment in Victoria. I don't think New South Wales are doing it quite yet. Some of the advertising agencies have got um, you know innovation labs set up or design thinking spaces set up, just like they do at Stanford University, where IDEO have their um, have their uh, academic you know and run a lot of their courses. They have a design thinking whole process there. I was lucky enough to go there a couple of years ago um, and 
visit some of their classes, visit their design thinking lab, the, the whole way they've got it set up. It's not hard to do, Julian. Very simple, very basic. Um, but the, the thought and just knowing that you've got somewhere to go to start solving problems. But obviously uh, uh, smaller businesses wouldn't have the money to be able to put teams together, but they could do it on a, you know, on a part-time or small-term basis. They could, or they could come onto one of our workshops. So there's a, there's a whole lot of variety of ways that, you know, even the mastermind, the, the thinking behind yeah. um, the mastermind, the collective brains within a group, finding the right networking group as well. So, you know, we had a, a, a networking group last night and they, and they actually said the beauty of this is we don't sit around and make small talk and introduce ourselves every night. What we do is we get stuck straight into a problem that someone's got and therefore we can help solve the problem. Uh, and so it, it, where you spend your time, but if you can get involved with a diverse group of people um, and people who are optimists and look forward, they fail forward instead of falling backwards and, and landing on their derrieres, um, they're the kind of people that you want to hang with in order to solve problems and to move forward. Mm, okay, that sounds good. Oh, although it's, it's not new because uh, I was involved in that in the 1980s over yep. in England. <laughs> but, but obviously That's these right. things keep spinning not around, don't they? Yeah, and like we said, you know, design thinking, the principles behind design thinking have been around since nine, the 1960s. Yeah. The principles for holocratic management systems have been around since, you know, the, the early 1990s. Yeah. So all these new words that we're hearing now, they're not necessarily new processes. Regurgitated. By resurgence. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for your time again, Christina. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Look forward to it, Julian. Have a great week. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina there with you. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it, that... Uh, some teams are looking at really solving some of these problems. We keep going back to those customers, though, don't we? Time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips today. First one, as we said earlier, strike the right tone when delivering a performance review. Writing and delivering performance reviews can be one of the most challenging tasks for any manager, and it's easy to be either too positive or too negative when reviewing a team member's performance. Sometimes a struggling employee walks away thinking that everything is just fine in his job performance um, and yet sometimes a star employee thinks you disappointed him or her. That's why it's important to strike the right tone. Decide ahead of time exactly what you want to convey. What should the employee walk away feeling? Then carefully manage your tone of voice, facial expressions, non-verbal communication and emotions to convey that tone. Don't let your own nerves cause you to send mixed messages. For particularly challenging review meetings, you may want to role-play the discussion beforehand with another co-worker to make sure you're conveying the right tone and are adequately prepared to respond to any challenging or pushback from the employee. So those performance reviews are important, but we really do have to get the right message and not just wishy-wash them. And while we're talking about that subject, the other one is uh, get feedback to give, give feedback to someone who doesn't want it. It's important to give feedback to team members, but what should you do when an employee gets defensive? Leaders in these situations may want to take a break from giving performance-related feedback and try giving feedback based on more closely on how the employee receives it. Here's how to get started. First of all, get curious. You can't assume that the feedback receiver sees her behaviour in the same way that you do. Acknowledge that you are expressing an opinion and ask her to, or to hear the other person too. 
Use natural language. Try to avoid words that carry negative connotations and place blame. Thirdly, ask for feedback yourself. Be brave, in, brave enough to ask, how am I contributing to this problem? And then model how to receive the feedback. And then finally, secure a commitment. Make a specific request for behaviour change. Be open to counter offers and come to an agreement on the goal. So there's some interesting points there and uh, it is important to give feedback and obviously when communication is involved, we can go back to some of those pointers that Alan Stevens was talking about earlier, being able to read the person and put the communication in the right context for that person. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. As we've said, we've looked at uh, profiling and uh, being able to read a person with Alan Stevens there. We've also looked at the Innovation Lab at the Florida Hospital. In a moment, Sarah Farley-Adams will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to talk with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants. Not our usual tax talk, but we're going to talk about uh, getting things done online and whether we should or shouldn't do that. We'll also chat with Christina on uh, innovation and have some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business and just a reminder if you were listening earlier if you have a young child between ages of eight, uh, 10 and 18 the, a budding entrepreneur you may want to come along to the budding entrepreneur info workshop go and have a look at buddingentrepreneurs.com.au I'd love your company for the business, the law and you next week at the same time. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Albert Schweitzer once said, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you're doing, you will be successful. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.